Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Hi to all our listeners. Today on Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast, we are greatly honored and privileged to be joined by priest and historian of the Episcopal Church, the Reverend Dr. Robert Pritchard. If you are either someone who went to an Episcopal seminary or were involved in an EFM program, perhaps at a local Episcopal church, or if you were ever curious in reading a book on Episcopal church history, chances are you came across his book, A History of the Episcopal Church, which still serves as the standard go-to for a historical survey of the Episcopal Church from its beginning years in colonial America to the present day. Dr. Pritchard is a professor emeritus of Virginia Theological Seminary, which is a seminary in the Episcopal Church, uh, where he served as the uh, Arthur Lee Kinsolving Professor of Christianity in America and instructor in liturgy. He was on full-time faculty from 1983 uh, up until 2019. He's an authority on the Episcopal Church's history, has written numerous books, publications, and articles on that. He was a longtime member and former president of the Historical Society of the Episcopal Church, and he's joining us today to touch on a few different interesting aspects of of Episcopal history about controversy and consensus within the church during the 19th century, a period which he specializes in as well as some American prayer book history, how these things uh, may pertain or be relevant still for today, and maybe some other things if we have the time for it. So, uh, Dr. Pritchard, welcome to the show. We uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be part of your podcast today. All right. And uh, before we dive into any particular topic, uh, tell us what got you interested in history. I guess history of your church body, but also just because uh, I know history is a passion for many people. And what, what ignited that? What got you into it? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think there there's a common uh, malady, at least, of young men in Virginia get interested in history. Uh, Virginia requires you to take three years of Virginia history at different points, or uh, and. Uh, but in, in addition to that, I grew up next door to the house in which my grandmother had lived her whole life, and, uh, and then in another house in the same block. Um, her mother died in her child, at the time of her childbirth, and she was raised by her grandparents, who, incredibly, her grandfather fought both in the um, Mexican War and in the Civil War. Her grandmother's uh, grandfather uh, was a major uh, military officer in the American Revolution. And she had a great aunt who as a child met Lafayette, 
when Lafayette came to the United States. And so just sort of being uh, next door, I used to sort of go over to her house and talk to her sometimes because uh, she was nearby. I, I just love to hear the stories. And so I, um, I, I think as a, an older uh, high school student and adult, I, was, uh, I got interested in history as a way to explain, to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. and uh, church divisions, uh, things I was seeing in my own congregation, uh, elements. Uh, when I was in college, the first prayer book uh, revision that led to the 1979 prayer book was, um, was produced. The Roman Catholic Church revised its liturgy and moved into the English language from Latin. They were, uh, the charismatic movement proved a somewhat uh, um, energizing, but also divisive force in major prom, um, mainline uh, religions, uh, Protestant uh, churches. So um, I, I got interested in a way to, um, to, to understand how we got where we are. And it's, it's amazing. I'm finding um, a lot of people just don't, they're, they're very apathetic and don't have an interest in, in history. And I, but I think when that personal you had a, always a personal connection with it, it sounds like, from what you're saying from your story with your grandmother. And, and I noticed in, in kind of recent years, I, I've, I've seen some, you know, pe people I know who get, they create an ancestry account, you know, and in the age of the internet where they, they're able to just find these records and find things about their own family, which connects to them personally. It seems like um, it, it, people then realize how important history is and how important uh, knowing some history can make sense of your present situation, right? So uh, uh, that's that's really great to 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 hear about that. Um, so, uh, but but you also, um, in addition to being like you know, James and I are we're both Episcopal priests. You know, you're you are the go-to historian, you know, of our church body. Uh, you also do have uh, pastoral and parish experience. Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Well, I, I had seven years of uh, parish ministry before I began to teach full-time. And then as a teacher, I've been able uh, before and since to participate in a variety of different uh, parish-based uh, exercises. But the, uh, the kind of two joys of that early ministry, first was I was the founder of Spanish language ministry of the Episcopal Church in Virginia starting a congregation that still exists, having a role in the founding of two other congregations, uh, uh, one of which is uh, a uh, maybe second or third largest uh, church in the Diocese of Virginia. Uh, so that was a real gift. I majored in Spanish in college, I think, which James did also. Uh, so I got a chance to uh, do pastoral ministry. Um, I uh, served um, in three different parishes in Virginia, uh, one as an assistant, one as an interim, one as a rector, and uh, one was an urban, one was an ex-urban, and one was a town and country parish, and the town and country parish included both a, a two uh, congregations in the parish, one a historically Black, one historically European-American. So I, I got to see lots of different people and uh, bump into lots of people's lives. And it was, uh, it, it's an amazing, uh, as you will know, it is an amazing experience to feed people at the altar, to be celebrating with families at the times of birth and mourning with them at the times of death, mm -hmm. uh, to talk to people about faith uh, at the point they want to get married, uh, to try to touch base with people and, uh, moments of uh, when they are serious about faith, God sort of catches people's attentions at different times, but uh, sometimes clergy have a role in uh, joining in that discussion about faith. Uh, so, and as a parish priest, I was always able to do something in a parish on Sunday. I'm currently a priest associate of a little country parish that was founded in the 1660s and wow. what has my great grandparents in the churchyard uh, in the graveyard. Well, well, it, it, what a variety of uh, parishes it sounds like you. I mean, that's such a uh, wealth of experience um, from serving in those different kinds of congregations. Um, so the the Episcopal Church has an interesting history, and you know, typically you're 
your average Joe on the street, if they know anything about the Episcopal Church, it's there may be a recollection that it's somehow connected to like the Church of England or that church that Henry VIII started, quote unquote, right? But the Episcopal Church is in itself, um, it's a unique American entity, a unique American phenomenon. While tracing to the Church of England and still in communion with the Church of England today, the Episcopal Church was more or less forged in a revolution. Uh, that is the American Revolution. Um, for our listeners, before it was called the Episcopal Church, it was a group of Anglican parishes in colonial America with ties to the Church of England at the time. Uh, but with the beginning of the United States, it became known as the Episcopal Church. I guess it was the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. And Episcopal, of course, is a biblical and Greek word meaning bishop. And this designation of our church denomination as Episcopal, from what I understand, sort of uh, kind of distinguished us apart from perhaps other church bodies or other Protestant church bodies um, in our newly founded country uh, that didn't have that type of polity or that type of governance. But, but Bob, I wanted to ask you and, and get you to talk a bit about a, a particular person, um, an early figure in the early years of the Episcopal Church in this country named William White. Um, He's a, you know, he's an important person for us. Uh, uh, his early leadership had a tremendous influence on church polity or the way the Episcopal Church would govern itself, on church liturgy or how we would worship, and on theology and what we would believe. Can you take some time now to tell us a bit about him and how he, he's important for really all those areas, theology, liturgy, polity? William White is an example of somebody who, from one perspective, lived a very sheltered and cloistered life. He lived almost his entire life in Philadelphia. He went to the same church for his entire life. Uh, he um, served in the ordained ministry in one parish for his entire life uh, and uh, was in some ways a kind of good kid. His, his uh, father or some member of his family was a, uh, a leading um, a real estate developer in Philadelphia, and he married, I think his wife's family included some people who held political office in Philadelphia. So he was, uh, he was present in a lot of, uh, he, Philadelphia was then the largest city uh, in the American colonies and in, in America, so um, in, in British America. So he, 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 he was a kind of local kid. On the other hand, he was the presiding bishop at the Episcopal Church for about 40 years. He wrote the first history of the Episcopal Church. He wrote the first, he wrote some of the earliest theological treatises. He was involved in the first African-American clergyman who was ordained to serve in the Episcopal Church, who incidentally, Absalom Jones, was the first clergyman to serve, African-American clergyman to serve in a hierarchical church in the United States. He had, was involved in the American Bible Society. He was one of the people who brought the Sunday school movement from England to the United States. And there's almost nothing that went on for the first, um, for the first 40 years of the Episcopal Church that he was not involved in. He, he was a major organizer of the revision of the prayer book after the American Revolution to uh, reset the prayer book, removing references to the royal family, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he set up the curriculum that until 1871, everyone in the Episcopal Church uh, who was involved in ordained ministry had to use and to prepare. Uh, so he's just, a, but on the other hand, he was kind of a modest guy and just sort of one story of his modesty. Uh, he had, um, his parish included two congregations, Christ Church and St. Peter's, I think, and they was called the United Parish of Christ Church and St. Peter's. He generally had uh, a clergyman who was identified uh, by the early uh, 19th century as a high church uh, parish um, with high church emphasis, which meant who liked to point out how important it was to have bishops. Mm -hmm. and, but he also had a, uh, an assistant who was more evangelical in perspective, who stressed the uh, similarity 
of the message of salvation of Protestant churches to that of the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. So at one point there was a big fight because uh, in a big uproar in the city of Philadelphia because uh, one of those assistants who was at uh, one of the parishes uh, or who had been uh, began to have uh, revival meetings in his parish on in the evenings. And the high church party in, in Pennsylvania exclaimed, this was a terrible thing. This violated our order. Uh, every word should be in the prayer book. You couldn't have people preaching a long sermon in the, in the middle and simply adding a couple hymns, you know, great complaint. Um, White, who at that point was maybe in his 80s, um, went to the church to the meeting once, sat in the front pew for the entire service and didn't say a word and then left. And that was enough to kind of, you know, Bishop White was there and he didn't complain. Uh, so uh, he, he also uh, at one point fielded the first um, request by a woman to be ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, which was before 1815. It was kind of, kind of interesting uh, yeah, yeah. because he recorded it and you know, I think some helpful person in the 19th century destroyed the evidence of this, but it, it, um, th there was a um, Life and Letters of William White kind of book that was published that included the letter uh, crossing out the name. But a woman said, I feel called by God to serve as a priest of the church. And White said, well, you should understand, uh, wrote back, that uh, you should understand that your ministry as a woman is to take care of your family and your children and support your husband. Mm -hmm. And the woman wrote back and she said, didn't I read something in the gospel about the one who is not willing to leave family behind is not fit for the kingdom of God? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he, he kept in touch with her. You know, there were some later letters that she was not ordained. Uh, but he was at least, you know, he, 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 he thought that was important. And he, mm -hmm. you know, the, the record of that was recorded. And, and in the middle of the 19th century, when there was a movement to make women in the Lutheran and Episcopal Church and also among Baptists and Episcopalians uh, to create a diaconate for women to have deaconesses, that story was then uh, very interesting to people as they were looking for stories and so it was put in the back of uh, a book about William White you could kind of see oh yes there, there, there's been some pressure on this issue before yeah um, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the terminology of high church low church or or high church uh, and even high church on one end evangelical on the other I know that's um that's common uh, Anglican slash Episcopal vernacular i know we're going to unpack that a little more but um uh so basically uh white and you touched a little bit on this already he was he i guess you could say he fell into one of those camps but he also was a mediator in many ways wasn't he in, in his theology between uh these two kind of parties in the episcopal church uh, during his time um, be a mediator between these two kinds of churchmanships, which had, you know, as you said, like high church definitely had an emphasis on, on polity, on how the church is governed, the importance of bishops, what that means, uh, evangelical or low church, um, is, is their emphasis is, is on the message and the centrality of salvation and, um, you know, so so you have these two um, different accents of 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 Episcopal Episcopalianism in in the early nineteenth century. So how does how does White um, can you talk a little more about how how does White find himself in the mix midst of that in the mix of it? How does he kind of because it, it seems like he's at the helm, even though we're a very much a democratic church body. He's still. I imagine when he died, there seemed like there's a big void, big hole to fill. But like he, he, he was a someone people looked to in many instances. I'm sure. How did he mediate? How did he deal with this? Well, the, the Episcopal Church, like any denomination, has always poles and, and directions. And and if you start, if you go back to the uh, 17th century and you kind of move forward, there there usually are two predominant ones. 
uh, but they're not always the same. There's always one which is called high church from certainly by the um, 1690s, the, people began to write about the high church party. Uh, and the, but there's others. And the, the original uh, group was a fight between a high church party uh, in England, which doubted the legitimacy of Protestant churches that didn't have bishops. Mm. And uh, they, they, they use what you might call the Brooklyn Bridge uh, argument, which is, you know, you can buy the Brooklyn Bridge from somebody, but if they don't own it, it doesn't actually, you, you haven't done anything when you bought the, the deed for the Brooklyn Bridge from the guy you met, uh, you know, walking across the street in New York. Um, and that the only people who are authorized to preach the gospel are those who are ordained by bishops. And uh, in the 19th century, uh, people, well, in the 17th century, they, they, they were people who would argue um, that the, um, or who would argue that God does not have to listen to the prayers of Protestants who don't have bishops. Mm. A not very ecumenical stance. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church was saying, um, God doesn't have to listen to non-Catholics, and many uh, Protestant churches, particularly after the Great Awakening, uh, would argue that anybody who doesn't have a dateable conversion experience is not really part of the gospel community. So uh, it was a, uh, it, it, I'm kind of embarrassed when I look back in the 19th century, people really were, drew some very strong lines and were not as cooperative you might hope them to be. So high church party for its first 150 years is distinguished primarily from that emphasis on church order that you've mentioned. If you don't have bishops uh, and you're baptized by a clergy not in bishops, it's chance that you haven't entered a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um, the alternative at the end of um, the 18th century, uh, end of the 17th century was to say, uh, was a party that people began to make fun of by calling them latitudinarians. Mm -hmm. and, and they were, and basically they were an ecumenical party, which said the Church of England ought to be able to adjust its doctrines and, and to uh, come up with sort of broad categories of thought uh, and generous constructions that, can, that are inclusive rather than drawing these strong lines. And uh, white, I think, was a latitudinarian. So that, that, that was a, that enabled him you know, in his parish here, you got a latitudinarian bishop. I can work with anybody who's got a high church and then an evangelical uh, assistant. So evangelicals were distinguished by the fact that they weren't afraid to use the language of the Great Awakening. They mm -hmm. talked about personal conversion. Uh, they didn't say that everybody had to have a conversion experience, but basically mm -hmm. they argued you don't become a Christian by mistake. You don't somehow by accident what your parents did become an adult Christian. You have to own the faith of your own. And uh, there comes a moment in your life when you do that, uh, and that's constitutive of Christian life. And if you want to talk about legitimacy of ministry, a ministry which leads people to that adult faith is a legitimate one. That's where we ought to draw our connections. And so they uh, joined um, Episcopalians in the 19th century were particularly cooperative with Presbyterians, but they cooperated with Methodists and Baptists and other people as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were um, Presbyterians. They, they sought ecumenical uh, relationships so long as they were focused on uh, questions of personal faith. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, but White wasn't part of either party, uh, but rather was, you know, encouraging of both. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know you mentioned um, in, in your work about this era how the uh, the Oxford theology, which was the um, you know theology of the Oxford movement in the eighteen forties, really eighteen thirty nine, that starts in England, um, that gave birth to the Tractarian movement and what later became known as Anglo-Catholicism. This is a new type of, you could maybe say, high churchism, which has some continuity and similarities with the high church party we just mentioned about, but also is, is kind of a new thing because it's, it is, um, 
it's focused uh, more in, on more fronts of theology and and ritual and and uh, and it's so it's this kind of new movement that comes along in the 1840s. And you you mentioned how this um, kind of broke up that harmony, that concord, that between perhaps due to White's influence, the kind of peace that these two camps at least did hold for some time during the, at least the first half of the 19th century, right? I, I, I think that uh, Episcopalians, and uh, they were uh, in the 19th century, first half of the 19th century, very much like Congregationalists and Presbyterians, uh, they thought theologically, uh, sought theologically for ways to uh, keep in balance two different elements. One was the uh, classical statement of the Protestant faith of the Reformation uh, and the uh, statements of the Anglican Church in that regard. Uh, and, and secondly, the emphasis on uh, personal conversion uh, of the Great Awakening and the, the need to have a personal faith. And so um, usually, uh, if you look around in anybody's sort of theological grab bag for the Civil War, you'll find often that there are pairs of terms that people use to keep that balance. Uh, in the case of the Episcopal Church, uh, there are different pairings. Sometimes people talked about regeneration in the lower sense and regeneration in the higher sense. Or they talked about change of state and change of heart. Change mm -hmm. of state in baptism, change of heart when you came to a adult serious faith, which could come by sudden conversion or it could be a gradual thing, but there came a moment uh, when you recognize this thing about the Christian faith, this is a real important thing. And, mm -hmm. and it's not simply something that I learned about from somebody, but it's something that gives life and direction and meaning to, to, to me. Uh, another, they sometimes talk about regeneration and renewal. And the interesting thing, uh, I did a study um, early on in my career in which I looked at um, the books that everybody who studied for the ministry read in the 19th century in the Episcopal Church, mm -hmm. because there was a required syllabus. Uh, the books that the people who taught theology wrote um, in the 19th century. And the, I, I discovered uh, several things I found interesting. One was that um, Episcopalians, unlike Episcopalians of some parts of the 20th century, really were interested in doctrine. So to be ordained in the Episcopal Church, you had to read a commentary on the 39 articles, and that became the basis of discussion. Um, okay. J. Robert Wright, who was a famous historian who, who died recently, uh, but taught for years at the General Theological Seminary, had a project he never finished, but he kind of began. And he said, you know, what he'd like to do is look at maybe the 30 or 40 top commentaries on the 39 articles and use them uh, to write a sort of historical theology of the Episcopal Church. Uh, this is the way Episcopalians have dealt with this issue, and, and this is the way in the Church of England it's been examined, and you can see this by looking at the shift from one author to another. Mm -hmm. um, so people studied it, and they studied the same books at high church seminaries and evangelical seminaries. Mm -hmm. you know, the House, which was the, the new, uh, you know, the new kid on the block in the middle of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and the Shota House, if you would look at their catalog, they would have this, you know, what do you study when you are a second year student? One of the things you study is Burnett on the 17th. That's all they wrote in the catalog. Well, Gilbert Burnett was a latitudinarian who wrote a commentary on the 39 articles about 1699. Uh, and it was the one that Bishop White, who was a supporter of a kind of latitudinarian post put on the required reading list uh, that was in place until the 1870s. Mm -hmm. And the 17th article is the article on predestination. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, when you looked at that book, um, when you look at the catalog, some in the 19th century would have known that immediately. Uh, we're gonna see what it is that uh, the Episcopal Church teaches on predestination. Everybody would have read that, that same, same article. Yeah, that, that uh, chapter in your book, I found particularly fascinating in the nature of salvation, uh, because when it comes to predestination, it seems as if Protestants have wildly divergent, diametrically opposed views 
to the point where some Protestants will question the veracity of a theology that has the opposing view. Um, and so when I was reading that chapter and you, you talked about uh, Burnett or Burnett's um, commentary on the 39 articles and his latitudinarian position, it, it reminded me of just Anglican history as a whole that if you can allow a, a reductio ad absurdum, it seems as if since the very beginning of reformational Anglicanism, we've been in a, in a fight between Cranmer and Stephen Gardner. Gardner being the predecessor or maybe even patron saint of the high church movement. I know William Laud would probably be the official one, if you will, but, but William Laud and, and Stephen Gardner versus Cranmer and a very heavily um, Bootserian, Calvinist, and I would argue Lutheran way of thinking. And Luther said in the bondage of the will that uh, the question of whether the will is free or not is the hinge around which the church turns. And it seems within Anglicanism, that that hinge is slightly moved to talk about predestination and one's position on predestination. So when I was reading through this, it, it really was absolutely fascinating that you've got uh, the, the Protestant end of the spectrum that tends to take a more Calvinist or Lutheran approach to predestination, whether it be double or single predestination, I think the, the 17th article uh, does tend, and this is perhaps because I have my own camp, but the 17th article, I think, does tend toward a more Lutheran single predestination way of reading it. But then you've got the, uh, the Arminians who um, would have come about in Anglicanism um, after the Synod of Dort or perhaps around the time of the Synod of Dort when Arminius was, was denounced, um, but also I think are enlivened by the, uh, by the First Great Awakening and that, that turn within American Christianity towards the religious experience. So that's a lot of me talking and not really all that much question uh, not, not really much of a question, but what would you what would you say to all of that um, to add to it? I, I would say, well, well, first, just to clarify for people who, who will not know what Gilbert Burnett has a, uh, said about the 39 articles uh, and the doctrine of predestination. He used a historical argument, which, uh, you know, the Church of England sent representatives to the Synod of Dort, who signed some but not all the articles of the Synod of Dort. Right. Uh, and uh, in the 18th century, 17th century, 17th century, 16th century, um, it, the Church of England would have supported the doctrine of predestination. The 39 Articles says it's a comfortable doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, uh, what Gilbert Burnett points out is that when the 39 Articles were written, the Synod of Dort had not yet taken place, and you could not expect the Articles of the Church of England to adjudicate a question which wouldn't come up with clarity for another 60 years. Uh, and so, or, so why would you think that the Episcopal Church has to have uh, any single position on predestination when people of good faith gathered together disagreed at Dort, uh, but they basically were arguing two different ways of looking at predestination. Mm -hmm. um, my, my own historical setting would, observation would be this one. Um, if you were in uh, 1530 or 1540, you know, uh, 16th century in England or in the Low Countries or in Germany, uh, you knew when you took a step to join a Protestant church that you were making a big step. You were in danger of being arrested and executed uh, or being on the wrong side of battle. Uh, you knew that there were uh, if you paid attention to what Luther said, you remembered what happened to a number of the followers of the faith that uh, Luther was espousing and what happened to people um, uh, like John Huss 
uh, for holding similar some similar views. Robert uh, Barnes. <laughs> uh, and so you, you you know people people knew that story. So the doctrine of predestination is a kind of wonderful way of saying to something. What you've done in embracing this justification by faith alone doctrine that Luther holds isn't some screwy idea that you just came up with because you thought it would be interesting. Uh, it isn't. It is in fact your response to the call of God. Uh, and and it's uh, you've really grasped what the core of the gospel is. And so predestination in that sense, you know, it, it's clear that people are divided into different camps. But what you're saying to people is. If you've accepted this wonderful word of the Reformation, you're actually responding to God's word. So it is pure. Uh, but two generations later, people are sometimes hearing the same preaching, but going to a church which now is a Lutheran church in a Lutheran community, and you hear all these same language about God choosing some and not the other. And it's, I don't know what it was like in your ear, but when I went to high school, they used to summon us all into the cafeteria once a year. Uh, in the auditorium, and we we had these warnings about drinking and driving and teenagers being killed in traffic accidents. And they would say, "Look at the person to your left, one the person to your right. One of these people may be dead in five years because you know they would draw us, show us slides of uh, teenage uh, drinkers uh, who smashed into trees or something." Um, but suddenly, the, the preaching, which had been comfortable, became anxiety provoking. Right. And uh, so about, you know, 300 years worth of theologians trying to figure out what to do with that and uh, coming up with ideas of predestination or ways to understand it uh, beco becomes a, a kind of major preoccupation of the church. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, at Virginia Seminary, I used to um, sometimes uh, talk in what we once called the lay school of theology and people from neighborhoods came uh, and I did a reformation course once and I spent one time talking about the issue of predestination and how I understood it and sort of this shift from it being comfortable to it being anxiety producing and afterwards they were about uh, half a dozen people weeping and I went to talk to them and they were from rather strict Presbyterian churches and other churches that, that had uh, taken the doctrine of predestination and made it the single doctrine that they were, and, and, and they, uh, you know, wanted to stay and have a pastoral conversation about it, that this could be something of comfort. This is a way of, the, uh, of God saying that, you know, your response uh, to this doctrine of faith actually is a, a good thing that God has made for you. Uh, so I think it's still a, a cause of some uh, anxiety in, in some corners. Mm -hmm. So um, I want kind of shifting gears a little bit. I, I do want to talk about some some prayer book history because we, we, we've been talking about the 19th century. And, um, you know, through it, we had the, the first American book of common prayer was in, I believe, 1789. And there were proposed versions of it in the several years leading up to it, but it was, you know, shortly after the American revolution, then for roughly a century, we have the same prayer book. So all through this time, we just described with the, with the kind of consensus under white and then the Oxford movement, and then the parties kind of um, drawing stronger lines and, and more having more infighting during this whole time, there's pretty basically one prayer book. And then we have a, we have another one uh, in eight, a century later. And um, so obviously there was some revision and I wanted to ask you some things about that. But before we do, um, uh, kind of looking at today, we've talked about the Reformation. We've talked about, um, James talked a little bit about how Anglicanism has lived in a tension that he sees. And I can see that too, between like the theological language of, you know, Gardner and Laud and then, you know, the language of the, the more reformational type of language, um, knowing the Episcopal Church has been called, uh, its legal name for the longest time was the Protestant Episcopal Church. Um, you know, James and I, we, we often joke, we find ourselves kind of lonely sometimes because we both see ourselves very at home in the Reformation. We consider ourselves reformational Christians. We consider ourselves reformational Anglicans. I hate to speak for you here, James, but I know you agree with me so far oh yeah and so um 
you know, but the Episcopal Church is, it, if, if you look at it today, a lot of, a lot of people's perception of the Episcopal Church is, is not Protestant, right? There's the joke that it's Catholic light. There's the joke that it's a via media between Catholicism and Protestantism. And, and uh, I've noticed in my own, as I've, you know, both as a seminary student and personally on my own, as I've delved into the actual historical scholarship around the complicated history of Anglicanism, I've seen a lot of revisionist history in the past really since the Oxford movement that that has uh, maybe not intentionally but tried to erase kind of the reformational heritage uh, of of Anglicanism and you know I was talking with someone recently about how the prayer of humble access is something so reformational it comes from the hand of Cranmer and, and uh, this person recognized that but I feel like I, had, I was the one that had pointed out that they likened it to some other type of thing and I won't get too much into that but but you know I feel like there's almost like a story that's been erased in a way do, do you ever sense that I, I know you've I feel like you've had to sense something like that you know? I, I had a, a funny experience a couple of years ago when uh, Lutherans were celebrating the 500th anniversary of Luther's birth or something there was a, a, a big Lutheran event and so all these Lutheran books came out and I got called by somebody who said we'd like somebody to write a chapter on Anglicanism's relationship to the uh, to Luther, and we called the ecumenical officer of the Episcopal Church, and, and uh, I, I don't know who was holding the office, and, and they said, oh, uh, we don't have anything to do with Luther, we're not a Protestant church, was That's so sad. answer, so, so I immediately volunteered to, to write that chapter, and uh, pointed out the, the, the strong similarity, I think it's clear that the English Reformation uh, was, uh, in large measure, a reception among a, a group of scholars, particularly at Cambridge University, uh, who, who read Lutheran books. So they didn't always admit it. They tended to say they got ideas from Erasmus, uh, you know, who was a less controversial figure and Henry VIII kind of liked. Uh, but uh, I went on to sort of demonstrate ways in which the churches have been in conversation um, and ecumenical uh, ties and connections. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the reasons for that, I mean, there are a couple of reasons for that um, myopia. And I think one of them is simply the, the Roman Catholic Church today, uh, particularly after Vatican II, has stepped away from some of the major things for which uh, people would say we protest uh, what the Roman Catholic Church has been. Preaching. So that, you know, uh, uh, remarkably at the end of the last century, there was a joint agreed statement on justification by faith alone of the Roman Catholic Church and the World Lutheran Federation. Mm -hmm. um, elements like communion in both kinds and um, even marriage under some circumstances of the clergy um, uh, in the uh, particularly in the Eastern uh, right of the Roman Catholic Church, but also uh, unhappy Episcopalians who would like to become Roman Catholic clergy can come with spouse. Uh, you know, many of the things against which we most strongly objected, um, which marked Protestant, which that, you know, originally the word Protestant is to protest that German Lutherans had against the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And it took a while for it to be a general term. Uh, but I think post-Vatican II, uh, younger scholars, uh, some people who haven't looked very far, uh, look only at liturgy and say, gee, the priest wears the same clothes that I can see in the Roman Catholic Church, but she's a little different uh, somehow. You know? <laughs> and you, you, you get a, a kind of psych reading of the church based on liturgical formulary. Um, mm -hmm. But the official name in the church is still the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America. We, the alias of the church, also known as the Episcopal Church, um, mm -hmm. is our simplified name. Yeah. Well, and a, and a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I'm getting a little off topic, but a lot of Protestant, Protestantism, it, it's become kind of a dirty word in the Episcopal Church because it's usually associated with with uh, untasteful liturgy or something like that or, or not. Um, and a lot of just public perception, whether, you know, um, whether it's a good public opinion or not, their idea of Protestantism is like T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, and 
uh, Kenneth Copeland or something. <laughs> so like, I, I feel like I kind of just refer the, the reformational uh, heritage, uh, the Re reformational Christianity is, is kind of on the margins in many ways, but I know it's probably another story for the other day. I, I do like how you brought up um, Anglican Lutheran relations. I, I've, I've doing some recent reading, I guess, since really the late 1990s and i guess a lot this century there's been a revival in uh, england and germany relations of like 16th and going into 17th century periods and actually for our listeners i do i'm in contact with a couple people now that have studied that kind of intersection and they're they're uh they might be coming on the show in the next few months so um but yeah no thanks for yeah well thanks uh bob for telling us a lot about your um a lot about your historical work. I feel like there's like a wealth of stuff we could still get into, but I do, I, I know we, we need to move on to the prayer book stuff. Um, if that's all right. Um, Please. So, so I guess kind of that, 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 that first prayer book revision we had in a while, 1892, it's almost a century apart from our first prayer book here in the States of the Episcopal Church. What, knowing how we, we went through all, we went through all this 19th century stuff, what was was there any anything controversial and new about this 1892 prayer book and um what what led to that um the, the uh 1892 prayer book was originally planned to be the 1886 prayer book which kind of interesting in itself and it was um I think the, the call that was strongest uh, by the supporters was that there was time for an updating. It was, it was time to make the prayer book uh, more palatable for people in an in increasingly industrialized nation. So just a simple example, if you want to have a noonday service, if you want to have a service in the middle of the day in the Episcopal Church and you agreed that you uh, had to use a public office from the Book of Common Prayer, there was no service that you could have at noontime because it was either morning prayer or evening prayer, and it was, you know, it, it didn't quite fit. Uh, the, the standard service as the prayer book had it, though that House of Bishops 40 years before had adopted a kind of uh, run or workaround, uh, average Sunday service uh, would have taken, you know, two and a half or three hours, and it was hard to, um, to stack services in a city church. Uh, where there weren't enough uh, seats, and it was hard for a clergy person to serve more than one church on the same Sunday, because you had the great litany, you had morning prayer followed by the great litany, followed by uh, at least the first half of the Eucharist, uh, and um, each with their own lessons, uh, uh, multiple sets of lessons, and uh, there still were some places where they expected an hour sermon from the clergy person, uh, though that um, by the you know the length of that sermon uh, shrinks during the 19th century and people move toward a 15 minute sermon when they had an hour sermon at the beginning. Uh, but uh, so the the prayer book um, in, in terms of uh, reading it, it's it, it they they had originally proposed uh, an office for sundry occasions that you could use uh for that midday service if you wanted to have a you know a lunchtime service in new york city while people were out out for lunch during lent or something there there was a uh proposed general um a general petition general thanksgiving which um called for god to turn the hearts of uh you know robber barons uh, to the needs of their workers and included language like let not their hire be held back by fraud mm -hmm. and it was a it was a social gospel focus and in the place of the long recitation uh, a thing that Episcopal Church got from Luther uh, was um, regular use of the Ten Commandments on Sunday and uh, the Episcopal Church uh, used to begin the service uh, where now some parishes use the summary of the law with a recitation of the whole Ten Commandments. So you would kind of then uh, play out the law. There was a proposal to have an alternative it could use at different times, uh, initially intended for that slot, but later other times, which they in which the Beatitudes were read. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, there was a sort of focus on the on the needs of people, so there it was. A, it was interesting, um, an interesting proposal. 
And it got adopted in 1883 on first reading. It takes two readings to do it. And it fell flat in 1886. Uh, and it took them six more years to come up with something that had about only you know, a quarter of the innovations that the 1883 uh, prayer book had had. Uh, some people objected to uh, you know, uh, two social gospel -y. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that material uh, worms its way into the 1979 prayer book, but others of it has never been, has never showed up in any official liturgy uh, for use in the Episcopal Church. Um, but it was uh, the uh, William Reed Huntington, who was a longtime leader in the House of Deputies and a, uh, used to call himself an evangelical Catholic, so he had some of that latitudinarian sense. Um, he was a big supporter of a uh, number of uh, three things at the end of the 19th century, and two worked. He was a big supporter of official U.S. approval uh, for the office of uh, deaconess. Uh, individual parishes and individual bishops had organized it, but he thought it was time for the church as a whole to approve uh, orders of deaconesses. He uh, was a supporter of uh, an ecumenical statement uh, first adopted by the House of Bishops in Chicago and then adopted uh, by the whole Lambeth Conference, uh, that is bishops throughout the Anglican world, the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, uh, which was a statement saying, you know, if it, it, we will talk about union with any church mm -hmm. that holds these four things, and they uh, were Old and New Testament, the historic creeds of the church, the, the two great sacraments, of baptism in the Eucharist and the historic episcopate. So it, um, we kind of declared an interest. And then he was a, he was a strong supporter of this uh, 1883 um, uh, Book of Common Prayer proposal. Mm -hmm. That was, he got JP Morgan to pay to print up copies of it um, as uh, to help people see it. They called it the book annexed. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still a few floating around. Uh, uh, and that fell flat and he got discouraged and quit the committee uh, that was um, proposing it. And uh, about that time, I think he had a nervous breakdown of some sort. I mean, it just kind of uh, took the wind out of his sails for a while. Um, well, it's, it's amazing how, I mean, by the time you get the second prayer, 1892, like you said, it's like a, it's such a long period and it's, it's it's definitely a prayer book uh, that was due or overdue. I mean, you have a, an epoch making thing like the industrial revolution, which, uh, you know, the booming population that came along with it, the mass urbanization of, you know, American life, um, the exploitation that went with it, which led to the societal concerns. I mean, gosh, it seems like um, if there's any concern uh, of the, uh, the church, I mean, it seems like a huge concern that would, that would um, elicit a response from the church. And so it's, um, you get like, so you get this prayer book after this long period with all the stuff that went on. And then you get to the 20th century. It seems like we're have we uh, maybe, I guess we only had two prayer books in the 20th century. We still have, we're using one of them still, but it, it seems like um, there was even more change and you have uh, even more revision it becomes a little bit more rapid and i know in recent years there's even um debates back and forth about a, another edition of the prayer book um uh i don't know if you want to touch on any of the history since 1892 um i, I know I, I imagine you were probably part of the 79 any of the committees that went along with the current prayer book we used well i i have a a very minor role that i play but i, I i'm sort of happy about it because i do get to I occasionally, well, I've heard a number of sermons that take the point that I, uh, I, I was a seminary when they were working on a seminary prayer book. So, uh, but I, I, I was interested then in, in doctrine. And, and so I found out who was on the committee to prepare a new statement of faith, mm -hmm. catechism, and wrote to the members of that committee and asked them if I could see a draft. And I think and I'm forgetting Robert O. Greenfield, maybe that's not, I'm not remembering correctly, but so, anyway, there was a canon of the cathedral, uh, one of the uh, cathedrals on the West Coast uh, and one of the dioceses in the Northwest. Um, and he sent me, a, um, sent me a copy. 
And, and I wrote back and I made some suggestions. One of the suggestions I wrote was uh, there was a statement about what was the, the role of bishops, priests, and deacons, and lay people. And through each one of those, it says, you know, the role of a bishop is to represent Christ in the church and da, da, da. the role of a priest is to represent Christ in the church and the role of a deacon is to represent Christ. And, and then you got to the lay people and that line wasn't there. And I wrote back and said, my Lord, what do you, you know, what, have you looked at the baptismal service? Uh, you know, what are we asking of people? What are we hoping? What are we praying? What do we understand? about joining the body of Christ. Everybody has a role. And, and they put that line in that had been for bishops, priests, and deacons for the laity. Mm -hmm. Now, it may have been, I got a nice letter thanking me for my comments. And you know, it may have been somebody else made that comment, but I never heard that anybody else, and it was, I was never told anybody else made that comment. Uh, and the, the prayer book came out and there it is. And I I'm sort of got very excited. And, and then as a seminary professor, uh, I've watched as generations of students have discovered that line and have used that to say, ah, but the ministry, look, it says right here in our <laughs> catechism. Uh, so that, that was my minor role in that. Um, but I, I was interested in, and I, I watched carefully the first time I, you know, I was one of these kids who went to college and went to church. And the first Sunday in college, uh, the uh, then chaplain at the college I went to uh, introduced uh, the service of the Lord's Supper, which was the um, uh, the Eucharist was revised before the other portions of the prayer book. And so, you know, fall in 1967, there was my first uh, experience with a trial liturgy uh, that had the sort of many of the elements that would be part of the Sunday night prayer book. So I, I kind of breathed it in and was concerned about it. Uh, and then uh, more recently, I've been uh, part of our general convention. So I've represented Virginia as one of the clergy uh, deputies to general convention. And uh, at least three times I have served on the committee on the prayer book and liturgy of general convention and twice been the secretary of that body. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not uh, at this upcoming convention. I'm on the constitution canons committee, which is another interest I have. Mm -hmm. um, if, I mean, be as comfortable as you want in sharing this, but if, you know, not that you have like the ultimate say in what goes on and if there is to be a, another prayer book. And um, I don't think that's even, it's always on the table in some form and uh, you know, it, but uh, we, we can be perfectly content with the one we have now, but let's say if there was another one, if, if you had to urge against, if you had urged for one thing being included in another prayer book, and urge and one thing to be retained and not taken out. And this is my own curiosity. Huh. Uh, what the what would they be? I'm just. Um, so first, can I clarify where we are in the church? General Convention got a proposal in 2018 right. to begin a full scale revision of the prayer book. Right, and um, and uh, it at. Uh, taking nine to 12 years and costing uh, three or four million dollars or something. General Convention said, uh, uh, we'll set up a committee to talk about this, but we're not adopting that proposal. Okay. So, so what's coming to the General Convention is going to be a proposal that uh, redefines what the prayer book is. And okay. what it says, what the proposal says is that uh, any uh, liturgy adopted by general convention counts as a prayer book even if we don't print a new book and add it and the idea is it's supposed to um, increase the authorization and the range of materials um, and i would say uh, make us more like say presbyterians or or methodist in which you know often there is a liturgy there you can use it if you want but if you have something else you can use that as well I, I think it would, uh, um, so I'm not highly enthusiastic about that. I think it takes away the, the common prayer, uh, which has been so basic to us, uh, though it's a nice way to avoid arguing about what the common prayer is if you just authorize everything that everybody wants. Then you, uh, so it's a, it is a highly latitudinarian suggestion, uh, which I think begins to touch the nature of the church. 
Right. Uh, so if I wanted to, if I wanted to leave something out and wanted to add something, uh, I would love to rewrite the instructions about prayer for the dead. You know, prior to the 20th century, the 1920th prayer book, we did not pray for the dead. We gave thanks for the dead uh, and their lives, and but we trusted that God knew what to do with the dead. That God, God didn't need us to tell him or to tell God uh, what should happen to the dead. Uh, the 79 prayer book was the first prayer book that said there must be prayer for the dead. What, and so, you know, what, what I would say, um, I would rewrite that line to say, why do we include the names of the dead in our, why do we sometimes include the names of the dead in our prayers? We do so to give thanks for their example, to express our hope for reunion on the last day when God brings God's kingdom together. And we do so uh, as well um, as an affirmation of our belief that uh, in the love of Christ, not even death separates us uh, from Christ Jesus and we have union in him. Uh, something, you know, which is a little more nuanced when saying we pray for the dead because we must pray for the dead. So I, I would like that. That would be a return to a more Reformation standard and not to a 19th century uh, Anglo-Catholic readoption of a position we had not held uh, or early 20th century readoption. Um, at, at one point, my answer to the question was, uh, would have been, what do I want to add? And I think I would have liked to add a, um, uh, there's an, there, at the end of the Eucharist, there is an order for Eucharist. It's just an outline of what goes into Eucharist. At the end of uh, marriage, there is an order for marriage, which allows you some room in shaping marriage. Um, I would love to add an order for daily prayer. We have a form for private family worship, um, but um, I, I think there are some circumstances in which, uh, like uh, 19th century evangelicals, uh, uh, sometimes you might want to use some other form of prayer. And if you had an outline of a form that we're involved elsewhere, it would be nice to have uh, the same general idea of structure for what you put in when you gather for prayer. For on an individual level? Uh, no, for public worship. Okay. So that when... Uh, you you know, say you're in a, a college church, which basically uh, uh, wants to have a service, uh, you know, a, a jazz mass or, say, you know, wants to use contemporary music. Well, actually, uh, we're supposed to use music that is uh, uh, from Episcopal approved hymnals, but sometimes you might not want to do that. So uh, it, it might be that would just be a recognition that there's some ways we can bend the service that might fit the circumstance and people you know camps and conferences uh, uh college ministries there are lots of ways in which people do bend that um the um the worship in times of uh, national stress and other things it, it, it would be a simple thing to do uh, what i'd like to lose that it's to remove another thing and i'll stop here but uh, <laughs> I, I would and that there is a proposal perhaps to do this i would like to uh, take lesser feasts and fasts out of the calendar uh, in the 1979 prayer book or in the prayer book of the church and keep it printed as a separate text and simply put a note, other festivals are to be found. Now I say that because uh, every general convention uh, for the last 40 years has spent an undue amount of time trying to figure out who to put onto the calendar of the Book of Common Prayer, which takes uh, at least two conventions and generally three and sometimes four conventions simply to, uh, to do that because you need to, uh, we think we have the 79 prayer book, but actually we have the 2018 prayer book because that's the last time we added a new name. Mm. Uh, and we, we have to, but if we just gave up trying to put um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the newest person we're trying to celebrate in our history into the calendar of the Book of Common Prayer, we save an awful lot of time. Uh, and then every general convention could come up with a book of lesser feasts and fasts. You know, uh, this convention has the proposal uh, of throwing some people off the calendar because people discover they were 19th century Southerners uh, who, surprise, uh, had some relationship to the institution of slavery. So we're, we're going to take them out of the prayer book. 
Um, it would be it, but it takes two conventions uh, to do that. So it would be uh, it would be easier if we simply had a set of biblical names uh, that uh, stayed in the prayer book, and then a C also. Uh, if you would like to to celebrate WPD Bliss, uh, you know, or uh, I just uh, V just Gutter, or you know, some other figure of importance in the history of the church. Um, mm -hmm. Right. I would really, I would really like for there to be a rubric that allowed for the use of previously authorized prayer books, 28, 1892, 1789, 1662, 1559, 1552, 1549. I'd like to be able to do that without having Episcopal authorization first, because some bishops are if I had to choose the prayer book that I think represents Anglican theology as I understand it, it wouldn't be the 1979. It'd probably be the 1559, the Elizabethan settlement. Um, but such things are not allowed unless you have prior authorization by a bishop who probably has a very different view of what Anglicanism is. So... We can all dream, uh, James, but I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Dreaming it is, yes. Uh, well, um, Bob, thanks for being on. This is a great discussion. Um, gosh, what a what what a mind to bring onto the show, and um, I mean, it's, you have so much to share about our our rich history. So, thank you. This is a great thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. It's always uh, fun to talk about the church and about people who love Jesus. And uh, Amen. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, God bless. And um, and for our listeners, our uh, we will be back on um, soon with another great guest. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you haven't already, um, listeners, uh, go ahead and uh, feel free to give us a rating. Um, the more ratings we get, the closer we get to having the listenership of size of Joe Rogan, um, the, which is, um, you know, quite, quite a feat. But uh, the, the more ratings we have, the more it pops up, the more the algorithms uh, will, will make it so that people find our podcast a little bit easier. Um, and so we appreciate whether it's I, or not iTunes, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you listen to us through. Go ahead and give us a rating, five, four, three stars, however much you honestly feel about our show. We can take it. So thank you uh, for tuning in and we will uh, be excited uh, to, to, to be back on soon. God bless.